Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. I am your host, Jeremy Goldcorn, solo today as Kaiser is in the United States. I am joined today by Adam Minter, author of the book Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade. Welcome to Seneca, Adam. So great to be here. So, um... The book is a really interesting book, and I won't introduce you with the biography because we'll kind of get into it as we talk about the book. But let's first of all, uh, its main subject is the global scrap industry. Can you tell us about the size of the global scrap in industry? Give us some numbers. What, what, what makes up the, the trade in global junk? Sure, sure. Well, it's basically everything that's excess and waste Everything from what you throw into your recycling bin, which is only about 15% of what's recycled in the developed world, to factory material that's left over from manufacturing, everything from an engine to an iPad. Altogether, that stuff, processing it, turning it into new stuff, is about a $500 billion U.S. dollar industry. Um, dollar for dollar, that's about the size of the economy of Norway. Um, by 2020, there's an estimate out there from Bank of America that it could be a $2 trillion industry. In terms of employment, in the book, I asked estimate that it could very well be the world's second largest employer. And all you need to do is, you know, drive through any Chinese town, really. And if people aren't farming, and I'm not talking the big cities, but even the big cities, um, what are they doing? They tend to be picking up people's stuff. You know, they're picking up after people, looking for value in stuff, whether it be cans, plastic, newspapers, cardboard. Uh, it's a huge employer. In fact, I call it the entrepreneurial opportunity of last resort in the book. So it's very big. And why the entrepreneurial opportunity of last resort? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, people don't aspire to be junk men and junk women. Uh, you know, nobody, especially I think uh, in a city like Shanghai, for example, or Beijing, aspires to be somebody who makes a living from picking through their neighbor's trash. Uh, it's something that you end up doing first due to circumstance. So, I, you know, in the book, I talk quite a bit um, about my family, uh, which was in the business. My great-grandfather came to the United States um, from Russia, hoping to be a vaudevillian, a song and dance man. And he ended up in Galveston, Texas. And, uh, you know, he didn't speak the language. He didn't have any education, and he was Jewish, so he's discriminated against. So what do you do? Uh, he can't get a job. He started picking rags, literally rags, off the streets of Galveston, Texas, and selling them to paper mills and uh, people who make stuffing and cushions. For him, the junk trade, and that's what it was, uh, and he was the exact equivalent of what you might see on the streets of Beijing or Shanghai. It was the entrepreneurial opportunity of last resort. It wasn't anything he aspired to, and that's, that's essentially what it means. Because you don't need anything to pick up junk. You're right. just you're starting with nothing and you're just taking what other yeah. people don't want. Yeah, all all you need is, you know, a bag. You know, in, in Beijing maybe you need a you know what they call the snakeskin bags, those sort of woven plastic bags. Um all you need is a bag to put something in. There's no capital necessary. Over time you can accumulate capital, but anybody can do it. It somehow seems such a, a kind of Jewish story. Uh, your grandfather fail at show business, right. try junk. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And well, but that's you know that's the amazing thing because the business, at least in Europe um, and in North America, uh, for for decades, for centuries, was largely Jewish. You know, due to uh, due to discrimination, uh, largely. And can you tell us a little bit more about your grandmother, who uh, sure. is a lovely character in the book? Yeah. Well, my grandmother uh, was my great-grandfather's uh, uh, middle daughter, 
And she uh, grew up in the business doing the things you do in a small family junk business in Minneapolis. Now, my great-grandfather had moved up from Galveston, Texas, to Minneapolis. Don't know why. He just did and uh, had a family. And junk businesses are family businesses, I mean, especially when they're small. Everybody throws in. So my grandmother growing up, she described this to me, she would do things like cleaning brass, Now, what that means is if a plumber sells you the old pipes he took out of somebody's house, you're going to have brass pipes with, say, steel washers on it. So cleaning brass means taking those steel washers off so you can recycle the steel washers from the brass pipes. That's something my grandmother did. In fact, uh, she told me that's how they paid for for her older brother's bar mitzvah. Uh, You know, that was her father's bank was the old plumbing scrap. And so to pay for it, they went to the bank, cleaned the scrap, and they paid for Mort's bar mitzvah. Um, Yeah, no, it's a great story. Um, so I, I grew up sort of under her tutelage in my father's scrap business, which was descended from my great-grandfather's. He, uh, she showed me basically the ins and outs of the business. And it wasn't just the business, but it was you know taking me to things like garage sales, for example. In Minneapolis, garage sale day would be Tuesdays. And the garage sales would open at 7 a.m. So she'd pick me up at 5, 5.30 a.m., drive me to the garage sale. We'd be sitting outside of these people's houses at 6 a.m. So we could be the first person into the garage, you know, so we could get first pick at the stuff. And she would sometimes, she would make a beeline to these ugly brass vases that people have, you know, and, and I'd always wonder, you know, why she was buying these things. And you know, eventually she told me, you know, it has nothing to do with the vase. I, I spent 50 cents on the vase, but there's $2 of brass in it. You know, um, that's a great lesson. And that's a real lesson of the junk business. So I grew up sort of under her tutelage in, in the business. And that is one of the things that I think is really enjoyable about this book is that you're, you're writing about the scrap business as a business and uh, as uh, its effect on the environment and its part in trade between China and the United States. But you do come to it from a very, you know, personal uh, involvement from a a young age. Um, But how did you get from being part of a scrap family into into writing about scrap? Yeah, well, it it wasn't my intention. I, uh, I went into the business like many young sons of the scrap business do uh, after I went to university. Um, and I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to be in it. I had other aspirations. It was a, it was a good business, but, you know, I, you know, I had wanted to be a musician. I wanted to write. I, I considered myself like many, you know, forlorn young men, far too creative to be involved in a commercial enterprise. Um, <laughs> you know, my father uh, began to, and, uh, you know, after a few years in, in, the, in the business, my father started having uh, chemical dependency issues. Issues. Um, that actually ended up putting more uh, responsibility on me to run the business um, in ways that I had never expected. But it also, ironically, kind of pushed me away from it and pushed me away from him. And by my late 20s, um, I had had enough uh, and, and I walked away from it. And, you know, it was, there was a transition period there where I started freelancing uh, as a journalist, not intending to be a scrap journalist. And, you know, and I'm much more than a scrap journalist. People lately know me as somebody who, you know, only writes about scrap, but I write about a lot. Of yeah, you also well. have a, a column on in Bloomberg. Right, and you do other things. I don't mean right. To oh no, you. no, yeah. no, not yeah. at all. But but eventually, you know, through freelancing, I got the opportunity to come to China and and write some pieces on what was in 2002, which is when I arrived here. I was asked to write these pieces on uh, China scrap trade, which at that time was completely unknown. Um, but the trade magazines in the U.S. were starting to hear about all this demand in China, and they wanted to know what was going on. So I got a call from uh, the editor of Scrap Magazine in the U.S., and you know, we had a conversation. He says, well, if you think you can do it, you know, which I 
to be perfectly honest, did not because uh, I got to China. You know, I, was, I didn't speak the language. I knew nothing about China, but I wanted to get out of Minneapolis. So I said, yeah, I can do this. And I came to China and, and sort of dove into the Chinese scrap heap. You mentioned about your father and his dependency issues. Mm. Uh, you know, one thing I'm curious about, just as a as a writer, you you do touch on them in the book. Sure. You you look at the reason why when other people were making a lot of money in the scrap business, your family's business didn't, and you mention uh, your father's alcoholism. I mean, you didn't have to put that in the book. Uh, as a writer, why did you choose to include those kind of personal details? Well, I think there there were two sort of. I, thoughts going on in my head when I did that. Um, in one sense, I felt I did need to put it in there. For years, you know, I've been writing about the industry in China. I know a lot of people in this industry, and they all know I grew up in the industry. You know, it's one of the reasons they like to talk to me. And they've asked me at different times over the years, why didn't I go into it? And it's a very awkward question. I mean, to start explaining, you know, with a bunch of Chinese scrap dealers that my father is an alcoholic and I just couldn't deal with it, that just doesn't translate very well. Those are very difficult conversations to have. So I got very good at sort of hand-waving and pushing it aside. And I think a lot of people I knew in the business um, assumed there must be something there. But I felt if I was going to write this book, it was my one opportunity to sort of address this I don't want to say I was dishonest with them, but just to come out and say what was going on. So I, I felt I owed it to a small subset of my readers to explain what had actually happened in my life. Um, that was one thought. Um, the second thought was, you know, this will sound very crass, but it was kind of a commercial thought in a sense. Um, it's not to say that I was exploiting my... Um, you know, my family circumstances, but rather, you know, as my wife and I talked about this book, um, we were ambitious for it. And, you know, anytime you write a book as a couple, you're right, you know, if you're in a couple and you're writing a book, you're both writing the book in a sense. And one of the things we wanted to do uh, when we decided as a couple, we're, you know, we're going to take on this project is, you know, make it a book that has mass appeal, that it just doesn't have appeal to the scrap dealers and the sinophiles. We wanted it to have a broad-based appeal, and so we talked a lot about that. How do you do that? And one way is to tell stories about characters, including the character who's telling the story. And so I thought, well, if we're going to do that, then I have to explain to people how honestly I came to this very strange place, not meaning China, but this very strange place of being a journalist who partly specializes in being a journalist about the scrap business in China. And so that's why we did it. Okay, well, that makes sense. I mean, speaking of your wife, she also does make a, a few appearances in the book, uh, one of the more memorable of which she sees this massive scrap machine. Which, and what, what does she describe it as? Uh, she describes it as the sexiest machine she's ever seen. That's right. And why is that? Well, uh, you know, if you, if you ask her, she'll, well, I shouldn't say she will. I will say it's large and it vibrates, you know, 6,000 horsepower at once. It's just an amazing And it's thing. huge. It's really as big, that, that machine you're talking about. Yeah. How big is, is uh, that you know, machine? They, the one that we were on in Fort Wayne, Indiana, I would say it was about four stories tall. And it can eat, you know, I think I think that one can eat eight cars per minute. And when eight I say, cars per minute. And when I say eat, I mean literally eat eight cars. I mean, the cars will be fed in and they come out, you know, as fist-sized chunks. And the vibrations and everything else, it's it's a very masculine, uh, it's a very, a very masculine experience. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. So, um... Tell me about some of the the words used by scrap dealers, and I'm thinking of like extra number white cottons, number two whites, barley, um, 
these words? What right. do they mean and wh- where do they come from? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And it's one that I, I, it was one of the things I really wanted to talk about in the book. You have to go back to the early 20th century uh, in the United States when this business was really starting to boom. And there was actually trade, not just within cities, but between cities, say between New York and Philadelphia, you know, Boston and, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina. One of the things you needed to be able to do is if you're in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you're buying a bunch of cotton for a paper mill, uh, you know, from somebody in New York, you need to know what you're getting. Uh, You want something standardized. So what happened was uh, back in those days, they said, we're going to define what a load of white cotton is, Uh, you know, and it would be say, I can't remember off the top of my head, you know, 99.5% white cotton, and you're allowed to have 0.5% black socks in it, black cotton. I mean, it sounds ludicrous, but that's what it was. And so these were the standards that actually made the trade, sort of lubricated the trade. So everybody knew what they were buying. If I said number one white cotton to you, and you had it, you knew how to send it to me and you could only have so many black socks in it. So that's where the standards came from. Um, the next step was the way you communicated this stuff was via telegram and, you know, teletype. And if you did that, you wanted to save money because each, you know, your, your teletype cost was based upon how many letters you had uh, in the teletype, in the telegram. So what the scrap industry did was they reduced all of these various standards, number one, white cottons or um, copper, mixed copper, to these five-letter um, terms. So barley or honey, honey being mixed brass. Um, uh, you have something called taint, believe it or not, which is uh, a type of aluminum scrap, and it's a very specifically defined um, uh, 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 type of uh, category. And so it sounds very funny when you get scrap dealers together and you listen to them, they you know, say, well, I need a load of barley, I need a load of taint and tabor, and uh, you know, what's, what's your price on Zorba this week? You know, it's, it sounds- What is Zorba? Zorba is uh, a type of shredded uh, automobiles, um, it's a shredded automobile scrap from which the uh, steel has been extracted uh, via magnet. So it'll be mixed aluminum with some copper and brass in it. And, and these terms, even though we don't use telegrams anymore to communicate this stuff, still exist. So um, I actually know the fellow who uh, was head of uh, the naming committee. There's actual standards committee uh, with the Trade Association in the United States. Who uh, He was the guy who was in charge of coming up with these names and these standards. And he, uh, he came up with uh, some that were um, maybe, you know, uh, not the most wholesome sounding ones, Tata, uh, Tutu, and uh, I can't remember what the other one was, but, you know, so you can, you know, I could call you up and say, I need six tons of Tata delivered, you know, to Guangzhou, uh, you know, right. at X number, you know, dollars per ton. And in China, do they use the same words? They absolutely they do. use the English words. And, and, yeah. and all over the world. I mean, I've had the experience mm. of being in India. I'll never forget, I was in a place called Jamnagar, India, which is up near the Pakistani border in uh, northwest. India. And I was walking uh, down the street. Now, this is not a place where you see many Caucasians. And uh, if they are there, they're probably trading brass scrap. And so I'm walking down the street and there was this man pulling a cart with a few pieces of brass in it. And he looked up at me and he said, honey, (laughs) you know, I I mean, it was just the most shocking thing in the world to me. (laughs) Wow. So um, what, uh, uh, where does scrap come from? I mean, what are the different kinds of waste that people Mm. 
recycle and that that you 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 write about. Yeah. Well, I think one of the great misconceptions is is that you know, recycling, this thing we think of as recycling mostly comes from the home. And and that's not the case. I mean, most uh most scrap is industrial in nature. Uh, in some kind. In the U.S. and in the in the EU, um, you know, roughly 15% is what goes into the blue bin, the green bin in your kitchen. Um, what's that other 85%? Um, probably the biggest portion of it is automobile scrap. I mean, uh, we you know, we don't think of automobiles as something necessarily that are recycled, but they are. And the American automobile is probably the most recycled product on the planet. And the automobile recycling chain, which I talk quite a bit about in the book, uh, constitutes a huge percentage of the world's steel supply every year. Um, utilities, believe it or not, um, companies that run things like power lines and telephone lines generate an enormous amount of scrap copper. They're probably the number one source of scrap copper on the planet. And scrap copper counts for roughly around 30% of the world's copper supply. Where do they get it from? Well, every time, say, you put fiber optics in to replace a telephone line, that cable's got to come out. It's got to be recycled. So that's a very, very large portion of the global scrap supply. And uh, and, and I'm just talking about metals. In terms of paper, because a lot of people think of paper, newspapers and cardboard, um, uh, you know, come from packaging, you know, things that we buy, but they also come from industrial packaging. And in fact, uh, the number one export from the United States to China and from the EU to China by volume is actually a cardboard and newspaper. So, I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly important uh, part of the global uh, raw material supply chain. What about um, a type of uh, um, uh, scrap problem that is quite uh, written about quite a lot in, in the media, Uh, and you have certain views on in the book, which, and I'm referring to e-waste, electronic mm -hmm. waste, and um, maybe you could uh, tell us about Guiyu, the 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 place Guiyu, and mm. um, the e-waste problem. Why e-waste commands so much media attention, and what your views on that are? Yeah, well, uh, e-waste are is are uh, the old devices you know we all have. Um, once uh, once we don't want them anymore, you know whether that's six months or a year or two years, whatever it is, uh, that old iPhone, that old iPad, your old tube television, um, your old VCR. You know, people forget um, all of those things need to go somewhere other than your closet eventually. Um, and recycling them is quite difficult because what it means to recycle is to take something, split it into its individual parts, you know, get it down to all the individual parts so you can recycle them individually. So you can turn the plastic into new plastic, the aluminum into new aluminum, the, the uh, copper into new copper. Well, if you look at something like an iPad, that's not very easy to do. Um, you know, you first have this aluminum shell it's in, you open that up, and then you have these circuit boards. Well, what what is a circuit board? I mean, it's fiberglass, it's copper, it's got chips on it that have platinum and palladium on it. Um, you know, it's a very, very complicated thing to recycle. So the way that stuff was recycled, you know, traditionally, I guess you could say, before we developed some of the more higher tech means of handling it, was uh, you would literally cook those circuit boards, okay? And I'm just going to talk about circuit boards for a moment here. So uh, if you wanted to get the copper off it, uh, you would use acids to dissolve um, the fiberglass and some of the cheaper materials, and then you'd refine out the copper and 
and you could also refine out the gold. The other thing you had on there were these chips. Um, now, the chips, um, you, they certainly contain precious metals, but in many cases, those chips were reusable. Um, so uh, it's sort of been misconstrued in the West, especially that uh, when you send a computer to China, the whole thing is recycled. In fact, it's not. Um, what happens with a computer is uh, when it's recycled in China is the first thing that the Chinese do is evaluate it for reuse, which brings me to your question. What is Guayu? Uh, Guayu is a town located, it's about these days, about a four and a half hour drive from Shenzhen up near Shanto. Uh, up in uh, northeast Guangdong. Uh, in, and the accounts differ on this, but in, say, the mid-1990s, um, electronic waste started flowing in there. And I've, I've been there and I've asked people why here. And the answer I get, you know, is really simple. is because it makes money. So, you know, why, why it ended up there? Uh, probably because the, the uh, customs administration there is very corrupt. But it started going in there. And one of the things that happened with it is you, you started getting all these electrical engineers going into the area, and they started looking at this stuff and saying, what can we do to reuse this? All this stuff was coming in from the United States, from the EU, and they created this amazing industry that would actually extract reusable chips. From and this was going in the 90s, wasn't the it? The 90s, getting... yeah. They'd extract these reusable chips and use them in new electronics, and then... The so it'd be like CD players, Walkman... Everything. Uh, computers. Yeah, everything. And that's the thing, is these PCs that would come in from the US and the EU, these PCs, some of them were perfectly good you know a 386 a 486 arrives in china in 2000 maybe nobody in the u.s wants it anymore but that's a great computer especially if you're going into some of the poorer provinces so some of that stuff would just get cycled right in there but the stuff that stayed there where it couldn't be reused as a computer they would extract the chips and those chips would go to be reused in all kinds of functions. Maybe they'd be put into signs that scroll, you know, today's lunch specials that are then sold to diners in Des Moines, Iowa. And, and that's a very real use. A lot of it went into toy factories. So a lot of toys that were manufactured and continue to be manufactured in China use these chips that have been extracted from so-called e-waste that's been imported or increasingly comes from China. Uh, now they're using old chips. Um, so 80% of the revenue in a place like Guayu comes from that. The dirty side of Guayu is what do you do when you can't reuse something? Um, and that's when you start setting it on fire. That's when you start using these very environmentally and human safety-wise very unsafe uh, methods of extraction of copper and gold that involve acids, and it can be very nasty. So it's a complicated place because in one sense, Guayu um, is a hub of global reuse of electronics, and that's very green. On the other hand, it's also a hub for fraud because these this green reuse is essentially, you know, you're having these used chips being funneled into new products and sold as new. In a sense, it's green fraud. And then you have the very dirty side of Guayu, which is where you have the recycling going on, though, though it's gotten better over the years and done in an unsafe way. But do you feel that um, the articles that have appeared in, in the English language press have right. sort of overstated the environmental uh, problems of, of right. e-waste when compared to other environmental problems? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think, I think they've been very unfair and, uh, and they've been... Um, I'll even go so far as to say they've been a little ignorant because what, what happens when most reporters go to Guayu is they go down there and they get pictures of people, you know, down by the river cooking circuit boards. Now, that's a very 
real phenomenon, but it's not the entire phenomenon of what Guayu is. The reuse aspect of Guayu is indoors. You'll never see it. So in effect, a reporter who goes down there and films the worst is getting what's going on in people's backyards. Now, I'm not downplaying that, and I'm not downplaying the importance of that and the environmental destructiveness of it. But at the same time, there's a much wider story there that people just weren't bothering to get. Now, to be fair, it's really hard to get, and it took me years to work my way into these workshops to see this kind of thing. But nonetheless, it, it's very real. And to depict Guayu as a net negative for the environment, you know, it turns it into a very black and white issue. And it's not black and white. Most recycling isn't. I mean, it's it's a gray issue, like so much in China. But because perhaps because it it's connected with our iPhones, it's it's a sort of it's a, a trendy thing to report. It's on. It's a very sexy story, right. you know. What ha- I mean, if you go in, and and I think I if you make New Yorkers and you know the bicoastal elites of the United States feel guilty about their electronic habits, it's it's a it's get, a great white guilt yeah, story. Right. I mean, uh, you know, stuff it's, white people hate. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about the history of Americans selling their metal junk to East Asia? Because it's not this is not a recent thing, um, and you go into a little bit of this in the book. Yeah, that's it's uh, it's very interesting to me. I didn't know how far it went back when I started the book. Um, I knew that the junk business went back a long ways. I write in the book, you know, the junk business goes back to the first moment uh, somebody thought to turn you know swords into plowshares. That's that's you know that's junky you know par excellence. Um, you actually really get the burst of the junk business during the Industrial Revolution when suddenly there's huge demand for raw materials, and so people in the UK started um, going door-to-door collecting metal that people didn't want anymore and using it in factories. The U.S. in the 1850s started importing scrap from the U.K., metal and rags, to drive its industrial behemoth. Uh, The U.S. stopped being a net importer in the 1880s, 1890s, and by the 19-teens, the U.S. was, you know, becoming already a legend in waste. We already had a consumer society in the U.S., and we were throwing away much more than our factories could use. And so at that point, the U.S. started to become a major exporter, and in the 19-teens and the 1920s, the U.S. started exporting large amounts of scrap metal um, and scrap rags to Japan and to Hong Kong. And then Hong Kong, uh, as it does today, served as a hub for distribution distributing that stuff all over uh, all over East Asia. Uh, the Japanese trade um, was much bigger uh, right up to World War II, and it's a little bit of an unsettling story, too, uh, and not one of uh, sort of the American scrap trade's prouder moments because uh, the U.S. scrap trade was uh, exporting upwards of a million ton of steel to Japan right up until the late 1930s, in a sense, fueling the Japanese war machine. At the time, they were building, you know, warships, and you actually have accounts, newspaper accounts, um, I have them, of Chinese Americans protesting at docks on the west coast of the United States saying, please do not send the scrap metal. Uh, to it Japan. was going to make Japanese airplanes and right. bombs and ships. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very, you know, and, and, you know, during World War II, it ended. And then in the 1950s, uh, uh, Japan, as it was rebuilding, became a huge importer of American scrap metal again. And it remained a major importer uh, into the 1960s when, until Taiwan started coming up. And then Taiwan sort of started replacing um, Japan as that major import market. And now it's China. And now it's China. Okay, we're kind of reaching the end of uh, our time limits uh, on Seneca, but I'd like to ask you one more question before we get on to the recommendations section. Okay. And that is, in the book, you describe this meeting 
um, mm. that you managed to get into of the is it the Chinese non-ferrous? <laughs> yes, the, this is a, the Chinese <laughs> non-ferrous metals industry association recycling metal branch. Right. So you go to <laughs> describe this meeting. <laughs> so and and the great thing about that organization is their English language acronym is CMRA, which I, I don't know. So um, what it was is in two thousand eight when the global economy crashed, the demand for scrap metal in China crashed with it because. You know, Americans and Europeans and Japanese were no longer demanding consumer goods because they're all worried about being broke. So if there's no demand for consumer goods, there's no need for raw materials. So what happened is the Chinese uh, just flat out said, we're not paying for the stuff that we ordered from the United States primarily, but also from Europe, uh, you know, that's already on the water. So you literally had thousands of containers that the Chinese had paid maybe 10% on. And they said, you know, the prices dropped 30%. We'll take the loss of 10%. And that stuff uh, never was paid for. So the American and Europeans who exported that stuff were left holding the bag. So November 2008 comes around. This all happened in September uh, of the annual meeting of the CMRA. And the hatred and anger in the global trade, I mean, was palpable. And so the CMRA decided to organize a meeting uh, between the American and European uh, exporters and the Chinese importers. And, and there's literally the Chinese on one side of the table and the Americans and Europeans, and he also had a major uh, Middle Eastern exporter on the other side of the table. And they were supposed to resolve their differences. And, and you know, it, to this day, when I think of it, it reminds me of the meeting of the five families in, uh, in The Godfather. Not to say that there was any organized crime there, but I mean, there was a lot of anger and you could just feel that something very bad was, you know, was going to happen between these organizations. People had shown up at these meetings with bodies guards. Um, you know, it was, it was ugly. A lot of money at stake. I mean, you are talking, you know, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars, you know, uh, people threatening each other, you know, threaten each other in the sense you will never get metal again, you know, to the Chinese, which is a fairly, you know, serious threat. Mm. The Chinese sort of took it in stride and it was sort of taking the long view because uh, they knew, they said, you know, in the end, the Chinese figured, you know, we are the only market you have. Once everything recovers, you are going to sell to us again. So, you know, but that wasn't what was going on in that meeting. I mean, it was one of those situations where you had translators there and you'd have the Americans start speaking in English and they'd just go flying right past the translators and the translators would just throw up their hands and give up, you know, and then the Chinese would, you know, get their chance to respond, having only heard the first couple sentences because the translators couldn't even handle it anymore. And they'd go at it. And, and in the end, nothing was resolved and, and nothing remained resolved really until the global economy picked up once again and everybody said well we kind of need each other and trade went on so no problem in a sense yeah okay well adam that's been fantastic I, it's, it's such an interesting book i think you know it's not just a china book it's it's a book about economics it's a book about your family uh, it's a book about uh, an industry that very few people sort of are even aware is is such an important thing so Highly recommended. But let's get on to the last section of the show. Okay. Recommendations. All right. So we always have our guests give a recommendation. And uh, I'll start off. Um, uh, aside from Junkyard Planet, I'd like to recommend Philip Adams' Late Night Live, an Australian radio show. Um, a recent uh, episode, which we'll provide a link for, he interviews Anwar Ibrahim, the, op the Malaysian op uh, opposition leader, about the mood in Malaysia um, after the disappearance of, of, of the plane and, and, and the effect this uh, um, disaster has had on, on Malaysian society. 
Adam, what you uh, got for us? I have been uh, recommending the last couple of weeks David Pilling's new book, Bending Adversity, uh, which is a book about contemporary Japan, how contemporary Japan has been shaped and what the future will be. Um, you know, as a Sinophile, you know, as somebody who does China, I, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about Japan, but, I, you know, I sort of have to face that I don't know a lot about Japan. And so I really welcome Pilling's book because uh, it's aimed at a general interest reader, which I would consider myself, and it's so beautifully written. Um, the insights are so very profound, and the other thing about it is you start to see some very interesting and sometimes unsettling parallels uh, between Japan and where China is right now. I think, you know, for anybody who's interested in China, uh, you need to know something about Japan, and, and I think Pilling's book, Bending Adversity, is the place to start. Fantastic. Adam, thank you so much for being on the show. And best of luck with the book. Thank and you. listeners, we will uh, be back next week. Thank you very much. Thank you.